0: We're going to consider God's word now. We'll come to it and to turn to our passage in just a minute. In fact, if you'd like to turn there, I'll have you turn to uh, the book of Numbers and to chapter 21. Uh, For those of you who have been here a long time, we've looked at this passage before. Great truths in this passage, and I think a, a very profitable thing for us to see. Uh, but I want to begin by reminding you of something that Jesus said in the New Testament as he was speaking to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, right after his resurrection, as he walked with them and spoke with them. Luke writes this in Luke 24:27 that Jesus Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. The Old Testament. Jesus said, or Luke says that Jesus began there to preach himself, to explain himself. The Old Testament is extremely important for us in the church. You know, there are some churches who say that it's not Basically ignoring kind of the first half of their Bible. But aren't you glad, Christian, that God has given to us the whole Bible, that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament together? Uh, We can't neglect the Old Testament. If we do, we do so uh, to our own peril. Uh, They go together. It's one road from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament speaks of those things which are to come, the New Testament tells us about the things that were spoken of and prophesied in the Old Testament. Augustine uh, gave that great statement that the New Testament is in the Old concealed and the Old is in the New revealed. Um, It's God's picture book to us, the Old Testament is, filled with, with figures and symbols and stories all pointing us towards Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to demonstrate... Uh, The first part of Augustine's statement there, that the new is in the old concealed, that it's there. You can see it. You might need a little bit of of looking and understanding to see it, but it's there. And I want to do it by looking at the unlikely subject of a snake. Not the one you might be thinking of, though he will figure into it. Uh, Do we have anybody here that's afraid of snakes? I know that's a Common fear, but let's start this morning by understanding a little bit more about snakes with a a little bit of herpetology. Uh, You've probably heard of the king cobra. You know that snake. It's generally understood to be one of the deadliest snakes in the world, but it's not the deadliest. Some of you have heard of a black mamba an African snake, and it is, it is regarded as the most deadly snake in the world. On top of that, the black mamba, just to fuel your nightmares a little bit, the black mamba is not only deadly, but it is fast. It can move 12 miles an hour. I mean, for a snake, that's, of course, if I was being chased by a black mamba, I could do at least 13, I'm sure. But a single bite's worth of their venom can kill 10 to 40 people. And it can do it in about 20 minutes. But there's another snake that actually holds the the distinction of of being the deadliest snake, at least in the sense of the potency of their venom. There's a snake called an inland taipan, it's an Australian snake. Um, And its venom is 10 times more deadly than the black mamba, 750 times more deadly than a cobra a single bite from a black mamba could kill a hundred people and it can kill 250,000 mice with just a single bite what would you do if you were in the outback and got bitten by one of these Well, you'd probably panic, right, which is the worst thing to do by all accounts Um, would you you seek out anti-venom to counteract the, the bite I hope so Because unless you get antivenom and you get it very, very quickly, the inland taipan bite is 100% fatal. And today we're going to look at the unlikely subject of not just snakes, but of snake bites. And we're going to learn that there is a snake bite that is far more deadly than even the inland taipan, a bite for which there is only one source of antivenom. And we're going to see that by looking at an account from the book of Numbers, a a book that is full of these pictures of Christ. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 21 in the book of Numbers. So let's uh, turn there, if you haven't already, Numbers chapter 21, and now I will have you stand once again for the reading of God's word of these first nine verses. Numbers chapter 29. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. And if a servant bit a serpent, bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us through this passage, Lord, that we might, at first glance think has little to do with us. But Father, we pray that you would show us uh, the new being in the old concealed, Lord, and we pray that you would reveal Christ even to us this morning. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. We'll particularly be looking at verses 4 through 9 here in chapter 21 of Numbers, and the text is laid out. Very simply, in a simple narrative fashion, and so we're going to just follow the the path of the text here and use that as a simple outline to look at this passage here in verses 4 through 9. We will look at the sinful grumbling, the righteous judgment, the repentant request, and the gracious provision. We start by looking at the, the context, or let me explain a little bit of the context. The people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years now because of their distrust of God, because of their unfaithfulness to Him. Uh, Numbers 14 speaks of that. And they're now on the final leg of that journey. They just have a little ways to go. In fact, they were looking to cut an, a significant amount of time off of their journey. They had uh, approached the nation of Edom at the south end of the Dead Sea and asked if they could pass through the nation of Edom, just pass through, they were just going to stay on the highway, they're not causing any trouble, we just want to pass through so we can go around and go up to, which would be up around to the Jordan River where they will cross over into the the land of Canaan. Canaan. Uh, But Edom refused. And so the Israelites now, because of that, are going to have to go all the way down around Edom and then up the other side, down to the, all the way down to the, the, uh, the gulf there on the Red Sea, a detour of about 175 miles. And remember, they're walking. So the Israelites have just found this out. Uh, God has given to them a recent military victory. That's what verses 1 through 3 uh, speaks about. But as the people consider now the the path before them, they begin, the text says, to grumble. If you know the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness, this is nothing new. The text says that they became impatient. They're fed up. Literally, it means they were short of soul. They're done with this, this whole business. And so they grumble. And notice here the direction of their grumbling in verse 5 that it is against God and against His anointed servant regarding the circumstances. Verse 5 says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So they're grumbling against Moses and they're grumbling against their situation. But, but, And this is very instructive to us as Christians to remember that to grumble against God's care of us, to grumble against his decisions, knowing that they are perfect and knowing that they are good, when we grumble against God's care and his decision and his providence, that is to cast doubt on God himself, isn't it? It is to doubt God. It is to really distrust him. And it's absolutely contrary to that great aspect of truly Christian character that Paul extols so powerfully at the end of the book of Philippians, when he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be, do you remember what? Content. Grumbling is inconsistent with contentment. And it's against God. It's not trusting God. It's saying, God, you've got this wrong. But the children of Israel are grumbling and the children of Israel are not content. And so they grumble against God, against his servant Moses. And see how they grumble in verse 5. It says that they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. There's no food and no water, God. But wait a minute. That's not even true, is it? Hasn't God provided for them all along on their journey? Even in miraculous ways at times. Water from a rock. Bread from heaven. Even that's not good enough. In fact, when they say we loathe this worthless food, you know what they're talking about? Well, it's not so much that there's, there's no food, there's no bread, but what they're saying is we don't like the food that God is giving us. They're referring to the manna, that gracious provision of God to sustain them. Look in Exodus 16 if you want to see how that came to be. Gracious provision without them even having to work for it other than to go gather it up and put it in baskets. They call this worthless, miserable food, they call it. What you are giving us, God, is worthless, contemptuous, the word means, and we loathe it. We despise it. It sickens us. It is disgusting to us. Now, I've heard some pretty bad prayers before meals, but nothing approaching that. God bless this food that you have sent to us, although we find it quite contemptuous. That's the evaluation of the provision of Almighty, All Gracious God by the people of God here in Numbers 21. What's your reaction to that this morning? You know, we read this stuff and, and we say, well, there go those Israelites again, complaining against God, complaining against what he's, he's done. But I wonder, in fact, I, I know that in those cases we need to put down the tweezers and get out the beam pullers. We are blessed so overabundantly by God. Blessed in the church, blessed by the church, by our brothers and sisters, blessed by teachers, blessed by God's word, blessed by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And yet grumbling and complaining is very a very regular situation in the church. Just as prevalent now as it was then. We are a nation here in the 21st century. We're a church in the 21st century. A church of whiners. Amen? We do. I hate my job. I hate my spouse. I hate myself. I hate my church. I don't like the way things are done in my church. To listen to people speak about the church in some places, you wouldn't think that it's the great blessing that it is. All we often hear, all we often talk about with others are the things that are wrong. You know, Maybe we're not quite that blatant about it as the, the children of Israel were. Maybe we are. We should think about that. When we gather together, we talk about the church, we very often are saying, I don't like this about the church. We should be saying, I like this about the church. But the people of God here, or to us as the people of God, we can despise God's word in other ways, his, his provision in other ways, his blessings in in other ways other than grumbling against them I think the primary way is by neglecting them we neglect the word as we have it to read it we we neglect the preaching of the word by staying out of, of worship we neglect the sacraments by being away by not attending church by never opening our Bibles by being prayerless by being loveless and when we do that we're saying that these great blessings, the provision of God for our soul, that they're light, unimportant, miserable, worthless. That's what it refers to when the Bible talks about taking God's name in vain. It doesn't just mean don't use curse words. It means don't belittle, don't think little of the way that he reveals himself. And that's the things that we've just been talking about. See, that's what the Lord has to put up with from us. And it's what he had to put up with from the Israelites over and over and over. Read chapters 11 through 21 of the book of Numbers if you want to see that. But it's interesting that this is the last time that we have recorded, uh, have it recorded during their journey to the promised land that they grumble. And why that is may be answered by our second topic this morning, and that is the righteous judgment. So this grumbling and and despising of not only God's care for them, but His will for them, uh, which they keep insisting is wrong. You know, they're not just saying, "We, we don't have food, we don't have water. But they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? to die in the wilderness. Let us go back to Egypt, they like to say. And then they, then they go against Moses. And all of that is not just being whiny, but let's call it what it is. It's sin. It's rebellion against God. And it brings about judgment, justly by God. And here, a very distinct type of judgment, which we see in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. Now notice first that this judgment and its method is prescribed by God. The Lord sent fiery serpents. This isn't just a naturalistic phenomenon. It's not just a a weather-related thing that drove the snakes into this area at this time. No, this was God sent these fiery serpents among the people. The Lord sent them. Now, what are they? What are these fiery serpents? Now, the word serpents doesn't take much explanation. They're snakes. They're real snakes. They're venomous snakes, as we see. But what does it mean that they are fiery serpents? Well, Isaiah 6 2 uses the same word uh, uh, to describe the seraphim as the burning ones. It could be that this is a, a type of snake. It could be a description of the snake. Maybe they're red snakes, so they're sort of look like fire. But I think what fits best here is that it refers to the nature of the bite of these snakes as a burning. You know different snakes have different types of venom, different types of toxin in their venom. Some are hemotoxin that attacks the blood. Some are cytotoxin that attacks the cells. But like the inland Taipan, it could be that this snake has what's called a neurotoxin that attacks the nerves. Because the sensation from a neurotoxin snake bite is the feeling of burning, intense burning at the site of the bite. And the bite of these snakes was fatal. As they bit the people, verse 6 says, many of the people of Israel died. Now let's back up just a little bit, broaden out a little bit. I mentioned earlier that there is a bite that is, as it were, from a serpent that is far more deadly than this, far more burning than this, a universal toxin, such as is featured here. That serpent, the one we all think of when we hear the word serpent, is the one that came to Adam and Eve and came to Eve and caused her and her husband to be unsatisfied. Caused them to be dissatisfied with what God had given them. He caused them to loathe the gifts of God and to seek something outside of what God had given to them. What was the lie that the serpent gave to Eve? It says that God knows that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you will be like God. God's holding out on you. He's not giving you the best. And sin and the fall is the bite, really, that that serpent in the garden gave. When Adam bit the forbidden fruit and chose to try to rule himself by himself rather than submitting to God, that serpent, in a sense bit him not physically of course but it did poison our father Adam and the venom in that episode the venom in that episode with with the snake the venom of the bite of that serpent was far more deadly than any snake because it was fatal not only for Adam it was fatal not only for a hundred men or a thousand men, but that venom was fatal for all of Adam's descendants. All of them, down to today, except for the one who crushed the head of the serpent. And it's still killing people today. It's a universal toxin, a spiritual toxin, which brings about spiritual death, separation from God. So there's an image here in that. But back into the spirit, in the desert here of Sinai, remember, God had earlier used a plague to punish his people for their grumbling. Here he uses snakes. And these snakes, serpents, sent from God come into the camp and they begin biting people. And the people start dropping. This is judgment. Judgment. God sent the servants. This is temporal judgment upon his people for their disobedience, for their grumbling, for their disregard of God, for their breaking the third commandment. It was righteous, wasn't it? God is just in punishing those who despise his gifts. He's just whenever and wherever and however he brings judgment because the judge of all the earth always does right. He cannot do otherwise. And this judgment then wakes up the people. Good, that's good. It served that purpose. And they recognize again, as they have in the past in the book of Numbers, they recognize, verse 7 says, we have sinned. We deserve this. And, to their credit, they do what they need to do. And they do this I think not only because God has taught it to them, because they have had so much practice in having to do it. And what do they do? They go to Moses and through Moses to God. And they bring to Moses the repentant requests. the third thing we want to see. Just briefly here for this, but importantly, verse 7 says that the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So again, credit, where credit is due. The people do the right thing, and let's look at what they do, what right things the Israelites do. They recognize their sin. We have sinned. Second, they they flee to God for relief, for God to reconcile them. They come to God, notice, through God's mediator, Moses. Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant. He is the one, uh, if people have things to say, or if God has things to say to the people, he does it through the mediator, through Moses. And if the people want to say something to God, they say it through the mediator. And in this, Moses is a picture of Christ who is our mediator, who is the mediator of the new covenant, who is the one who goes between God and man, who bridges that gap, who stands in between and brings us together as the reconciler. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And here Moses is a picture of him. And they come to Moses, they come to the mediator, they repent. They say, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They confess their sin and they ask Moses to pray to the Lord, to intercede on their behalf to the Lord that he might take away these serpents from us. They pray for relief, they pray for deliverance from God's judgment. And Moses does so, right? The end of verse 7 says, Moses, so Moses prayed for the people. The God given mediator to his people is faithful in his work. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament reminds us of that. He says, Moses was faithful in all his house. But he goes on to say in that passage in Hebrews chapter 3 that Jesus Christ is so much better. So much better than even Moses. Just as the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Under Christ, we don't have to come to a human mediator to implore God on our behalf. We don't have to bring sacrifices to a priest. Because the priest and the sacrifice are one. Our Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice has been made and accepted. One sacrifice, one intercessor who is God himself. So we see the sinful grumbling, we see the righteous judgment, we see the repentant request. And as a result, we see the gracious provision. Moses prays. He intercedes. He mediates. And as he always does, God hears the voice of his mediator. take special note of the manner of God's answer this morning. The people tell Moses, pray that God will take the snakes away. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't take the snakes away. He answers, yes, but not the way they want, not the way they expect. Instead, he gives them a remedy. Instead, he gives them the antivenom for these deadly snake bites. He tells Moses in verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses, make a serpent, make a representation of one of these fiery snakes and set it on a pole, on on a standard, on a big long stick, and set it in the ground. And anyone, he says, who's bitten by one of these real snakes, if they look at this representation of the snake, God says, they'll live. They will be restored. They will receive the antivenom. And so Moses does, as God instructs him, verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if the, a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the text says that he makes this serpent, makes it out of, of bronze or brass and he sets it on a pole. In the Old Testament, bronze and, represents sin and judgment. And both are appropriate here, right? Because the judgment is coming because of the sin. And Moses certainly explained this to the people. It's not recorded for us. But they do it, and behold, they are cured from their snake bites. They are not dying now when they are bit. Now, I think that, at least for me, the first thing that strikes me as I look at this is the oddness of the remedy that God gives. That the image of a snake Would save them from the bite of a snake. Why did God choose to do that? We'll file that away. Let's go to the second thing, and that's the method of the remedy. There's nothing magical here about the bronze serpent, it has no inherent qualities. And it's not merely the existence of the snake that cures the Israelites from these bites. God said, everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And even more telling there is verse 9, that if a serpent serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the word that's translated to look at there in in this verse refers not simply to noticing it, not simply to, to seeing it or glancing at it, but it means to fix your gaze on it. To look at something with intention. And this really adds to the oddness of the remedy in some ways. Because this remedy demanded not reason, not particular actions, not an offering, not a sacrifice, but simply trust in God providing in this way. To trust, well let's say it, to have faith, because that's what tr- faith is, is trust, isn't it? To have faith in looking to God's appointed means and relying on that provision. It was very simple. If the people would do that, they would live. If they wouldn't do it, they would die. If they sought any other means of, of rescue other than the one plan of God, if they thought, well, that's silly, I'll, I'll go over here and I will you know, I'll cut an X on the bite and suck the poison out of it. By the way, that's been debunked, so don't try that, if you get bad. But if they sought out any other way, they would still die. The oddness of the plan actually magnified the working of God in the cure because it pointed everything to God. He was the only one who could save them. They couldn't thank themselves. They couldn't thank Moses. They could only thank God. And notice also that this plan of God did not stop anyone from being bitten. It didn't take away the snakes, but whoever was bitten, whoever trusted in that provision that God had made, that one was cured. Well, let's remember that we've already seen that there is a greater venom than that of these fiery serpents. There is an eternal, eternally fatal bite of sin, that universal toxin of original sin. It kills without exception. It is the, the torment of eternal judgment through the just judgment of God. There is no cure to be found anywhere else by any means manufactured, dreamed up by man, But, beloved people, this morning, God has given to us the antivenom, a divine antivenom, greater than the image of a serpent on a pole, but one to which that serpent on the pole pointed, that which it represented, because there is one who has triumphed over the serpent. Not the ones in the, the wilderness of Sinai, well, them too, but certainly and especially the one who was in the wilderness of Judea, Tempting the last Adam in the opening pages of the New Testament. That serpent who was in the garden of God, the one that John calls the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, the enemy, not primarily of our bodies, but the enemy of our souls. And the one who has triumphed over the serpent is Jesus Christ. And he is the provision of God. He is the divine antivenom. The God-ordained and the only way in which we can live and not die. And how? How has Christ become this for us? How has Christ triumphed over the devil? Well, as John reminded us in our reading this morning, he did it by being lifted up. Lifted up on a cross. You know, I mentioned that when when Adam disobeyed God, the serpent, in a way, bit him. But it is also true that it bit all of us as Adam passed down his poisoned, fallen, sinful nature to every son and every daughter of Adam. And listen to this. As the people in the wilderness were saved from the effects of the snakes by a lifeless image of a snake... So we are saved from the effects of being bitten by sin, that is our sinful depravity, by looking to a true man dying on a cross. Jesus, who was lifted up. The God-man died that man may live. Just as with the bronze serpent, that which cured was in the form of that which wounded Jesus took on himself the likeness of human flesh when he took on our nature. The second Adam was lifted up to cure what the first Adam had caused. And he himself was bitten. Not by the presence of sin, but by the guilt of sin. By the judgment upon sin. He had his heel bruised. In the process. And because of that, we are healed from the deadly poison of sin. Romans 5, Paul says that, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Righteous. And the text mentions, as I, as I mentioned earlier, that Moses made the serpent out of brass or out of bronze. And we mentioned that there's a connection with sin and, and judgment. But that it is also true that in the tabernacle, the place where God met with man, that one of the central items was an altar. An altar upon which a sin offering was made. The sin offering was that bore the sin away of the people. And that altar was made of, guess what? Bronze or brass. And so the pictures of what took place in the New Testament is given to us in this Old Testament passage. Jesus, in his death on the cross, fulfills what was pictured in the episode with the fiery serpent and God's provision in that case. But it's not for everyone. Just as not all of the Israelites were saved by the presence of the bronze serpent among them, but only those who trusted in God's provision for their deliverance, it's also true today. It's no small thing, then, that Jesus made explicit reference to this passage that we're looking at this morning when he spoke in the context of the most well-known verse of the Bible, what we read today. We read from John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and how to enter the kingdom of God, it was necessary for a man to be born again. In verses 13 and through 15, he says this, he says, No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. He says that the Son of Man will be lifted up like the serpent on the staff in the desert. For this reason, so that whoever looks on Him, on Christ, will live. Whoever believes on Him will have eternal life. Looking in faith to the image of a snake in the desert of the Middle East which God had placed there for the salvation of his people is a picture of the Son of God being lifted up on a cross outside of Jerusalem for the salvation of his people. And you see, just as With the Israelites in the wilderness, faith was necessary. Faith was essential. One had to look on the provision that God had given in order to be saved. And it's the same with us. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes on him will not be condemned. Believer, the poison and the venom of the original serpent has been neutralized the anti-venom as it were as it were flowed through the blood the veins of Christ and was effective when it was shed on the cross the sting of death Paul says is removed but unbelievers if there are any here this morning if there are any listening to this you have been bitten with a fatal bite and your relief from the the death that comes from that bite, the eternal death, that is not to be found in trying harder, in doing more good than you do bad. You must, you must, you must look to the one who was lifted up on the cross. You must look away from yourself, away from your uh, so-called abilities, away from your, your works, away from anything in you and look to that one. To look up and to trust in God's provision through Jesus Christ. And if you will do that, you will be saved. And I pray that you will this morning. Father, we do pray, Lord, that as you have made such wonderful provision in Christ and through Christ, that the... The death that comes through our sin, that that can be taken care of, that it can be removed through what Christ has done. And I pray that those who hear us this morning, Lord, will look to Christ. For those Christians here who, who hear this, I pray that we will be reminded of, of the, the richness of the Old Testament and of the the glory of what has saved them. Not a snake on a pole, but the Son of God on a cross. We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by being reminded of this truth again this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.